Thank you, Lord, for your presence, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your presence, Lord. Not just in times like this, Lord, but that you're ever present in our lives, Lord, if we would just turn to you. If we would just keep our eyes fixed on you, Lord. You're always there, Lord. You don't change. You don't drift away. You don't move away. You don't go sour on us. It's we that do all of that. So, Lord, we don't want to take advantage of you just on Sundays, even as Luke said. But, Lord, that we would keep our eyes fixed on you for the rest of the week too, Lord. And I do pray this morning, Lord, it's a special day. There's many people here from different places, different churches. I pray, Lord, that by your Spirit you would soften hearts, not to hear what I have to say, but to hear what you have to say, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would shift us and stir us today. That even as I've put a message together, I doubt. I have so much doubt. And I realize that it's not my message, it's yours. And I do trust, Lord, that it would find its way into fertile hearts this morning. And that you would cause change. You would cause a difference. By your mighty spirit, in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen? Amen. I have to say it is overwhelming to stand here and look at a full church. I'm used to the afternoon congregation where we not as many people. So it really is a privilege to stand here. Um, so my name's Tony. Thank you, I've got some water. Thanks, babe. And um, thanks for having us, Luke. Um, thank you for coming, Roger and Tracy, to listen to me speak all the way from California. It's great to have you here. Like, <laughs> I wish that was true, but it's not. <laughs> um, so it, 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 it's a very weighty thing to put a message, especially for a day like today. And when, when Luke successfully palmed off the responsibility onto me a few weeks ago, it's like, okay, Lord, well, you know, it's about the cross. Which line, sorry, I've just got to get used to this mic. Which line do I take? Because it's Easter Sunday. It's a glorious day. And there's so many ways to approach today. Because today is really the culmination of many, many roads that lead to something. So I, so I had to pick a line. So it's like, okay, Lord, well, and so I prayed about it. And I'm like, where shall I go? And um, so this is where I landed. So bear with me, please. So some of you know, some of you don't. I was a builder for about 20 years up until last year and um, built a lot of houses and I did a lot of alterations. And so, and typically for the business that I owned, I had a partner, I would do all the quotes for us. And I, I... I guesstimated over 20 years, I did about a 1,000 quotes. The modus operandi on every one of them was the same. Plan would land on my table, and I would look at the plan. And before I did any detail, I wanted to understand what did this picture look like. If it was a house, there were elevations, and you could see it from the east and the west and the north and the south. And then you could look at the floor plans, and you could get an idea of what's trying to be achieved 
in this picture. If it was an alteration, it could be even more complicated. A single story becoming a double story, you've got to take the roof off. Where's the staircase going to go? What needs to be removed to make way for the staircase? So once you got your head over the big picture, then you could dive into the detail. And then I could do the quote. I'd have to measure up how much concrete is needed in the foundations, how much steel, how many bricks, how much brick force, aluminium windows, um, I'd have to measure up how much plaster, screeding, how many floor tiles are needed, how many wall tiles are needed, count up all the plug points and the plumbing points, and you want to make sure you've got everything covered. Because if you miss a prep bowl in a bar upstairs, that's 3,000 rand just for that. So you've got to be very careful when you put these quotes together. So you start with the big picture, and then you go into the detail. When we read the Bible, we do it the other way around. When we read the Bible, we read a lot of detail. And so today, I wanted to do big picture. Like an umbrella view. So for the theologians in the house, please forgive me. This might bore you a little bit. But I am going somewhere with this. So, how do we start with an umbrella view? Well, in the beginning, God created there was nothing, and he made something. And we know that he separated light from dark, and he created the heavens and the earth and the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees and the fish and all the big animals, all the small animals. And at the end of all of that, he created you and me. And he breathed life. And it was good. Right? A good time. And... Um, And then he said to man, I'm asking you to use the free choice I've given you to choose me over one tree. I've often said to people, wouldn't it have been better if he just removed the tree from the garden? Then we wouldn't be in the state that we're in today. But he put it there for a reason. He said to Adam and Eve, I'm asking you, I've given you free choice. Please choose me over the tree. That's it. Of course, the serpent came along. And what did he use? He used the weapon called doubt. And he suggested that surely they wouldn't die. And that the fruit was desirable for gaining wisdom. And then they would be like God, knowing good and evil. And that modus operandi hasn't changed. Even today. The devil comes along always enticing us into ungodly things through doubt. Surely this will be good for you. Surely this will be better for you. Surely things will go well if you, do, if you choose my way. And so in that moment, eating from the very tree that God asked them not to eat from, effectively what they said to God was, we're okay to be independent of you. And that's the human attitude that prevails today. Am I right? Every generation since has been held in this grip of death. 
You see, as mankind today, we don't want to listen to rules and regulations. We don't want to be told what to do, do we? How many people stop at stop signs today? Percentage of the population robots? Well, robots are a good way to stop the traffic down so I can get ahead when it's red. Talking on cell phones when we drive, etc., etc. And then we want to indignantly point fingers at other lawbreakers. Look what they're doing wrong. Aren't we? The truth is, though, that we want the freedom to live the way we want to. Isn't it? And so sometimes we live this life that's a little bit of God and a little bit of us. I'm going to live freely this way, and then I'm going to go to God because I need help in this area. Or I need him to fix this problem, and then I want to carry on with my life. But that's not the way God intended it for us. So let's move on past Adam and Eve. We see, and it's a quick chronology, the world becomes corrupt, and God destroys the world through Noah. Keeps Noah and his family alive, and the world starts again. Slowly becomes corrupted, and then um, sometime after that he chooses Abraham. And he says to him, I'm going to make you the father of many, many descendants. And we all know the story of Abraham and the test that he had to go through. And in Hebrews 11, there's a, a specific, we all know the passage of faith. There's a specific mention of a number of people. Why? Because of their faith. People like Abel and Enoch and Noah and especially Abraham. And the significant verse I wanted to read today was Hebrews 11 verse 13. And it talks about those men and it says they all died in faith. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And then, this is significant, having acknowledged that there were strangers and exiles on earth. You've heard this, the saying, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. Well, it's all, they, they already saw that. Now you think about a guy like Abraham. He was promised to be the father of so many descendants. How many did he see? Well, two. Ishmael was illegitimate. And Isaac. That's the sum total of why he gave up his life. But on a promise. On the promise of something to come. Which he never saw. But he was faithful enough to trust God when God said, if you, I will. Okay? Hold on to this. Because this is going to sail through what I'm going to share with you. So he didn't see the fulfillment of what God promised him. And even during the time of Abraham, there was no law. And yet he was faithful. The Bible says that he tithed. He tithed. There was no law to tithe, but he tithed. To the glory of God. So let's move through Abraham, and then he had Isaac, and then he had Jacob, his son, and then Jacob fathered 12 boys who became the 12 tribes of Israel. All right, And uh, we know that they end up in Egypt, and eventually they grow into a mighty nation in Egypt over four or five hundred years, and they become slaves. 
And then Moses comes along and leads them out of Egypt into the desert. And then God gives them the law. But he starts just with the Ten Commandments. And then he adds to that how to live, how to sacrifice, how to treat one another. And about 600 or so laws that eventually come into effect. And in and amongst those laws are what we call the sacrificial laws for atonement. Something has to die when you do something wrong. And fortunately, God did that for the Israelites. So they didn't have to die when they did something wrong. Because actually, the price for sin is death. For our sin, we should die. But it wouldn't count for anything, because we're not a perfect sacrifice. So God would give them the instruction to find an unblemished animal, a perfect animal, that they would sacrifice on their behalf. And you have this complicated sacrificial system. If you've ever read through Leviticus, you'll understand. And so we move on through Moses, who we know doesn't go into the promised land. Then Joshua comes onto the scene and takes the Israelites into the promised land. And finally, 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 in the brief history of Israel, there's an element of peace and prosperity with David and even his son Solomon who takes over. There is, look, there's still wars and battles that go on. But the tribes are settled, they're allotted the land, the Levites, the temple is built. And for this one brief moment in history, things are kind of supposed to be what they are. And what's that supposed to look like? Well, God is clear to the Israelites over and over and over and over and over and over. And and if I didn't say over enough times, over and over and over again, he says the same thing. He says, love me. Please, choose me, please, follow my laws and my rules and my regulations and my decrees, and then I'm telling you it will go well with you. Over and over and over again. And just in case you don't believe me, I'm going to just pick a passage out of Deuteronomy 7. And Deuteronomy is a recapture after Genesis. And this is God speaking. To the people, and he says, If you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep his covenant of love, not law, of love with you, as he swore to your ancestors. He will love you and bless you and increase your numbers. He will bless the fruit of your womb, the crops of your land, your grain, new wine and olive oil, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks in the land he swore to your ancestors to give you. You will be blessed more than any other people. None of your men and women will be childless, nor will any of your livestock be without young. The Lord will keep you free from every disease and he will not inflict on you horrible diseases you need in Egypt. And you will inflict them on those who hate you. Now let me put that in today's terms. Your investments will grow 25% every year. Your house will never deteriorate. Your cars will never need to be serviced. Your kids will do well in school. They will all become doctors and lawyers. See, we don't appreciate crops today because we don't grow crops. We don't keep calves. But to them, this was 
the very wealth that one could have if you were alive. And God says to them, if you will keep your covenant of love with me, I will bless you. I will bless you. And he does. But here's the irony, isn't it? When God blesses us, we drift away. God causes Israel to prosper, and then what do they do? They start to intermarry. And they start to follow the gods of the woman that they intermarry with. Why? Because it's going well with me. My barns are full. My wine vats are full. I'm tired. You know, we had a party last night. I'll give, I'll give church a miss tomorrow. It's starting to go well. Life is good. How different are we today from that? So you've got this vicious cycle. And what I want you to read in the passage is a God that wants to bless. And do you think it's outside of his ability to bless? Not at all. In fact, God's not even concerned about the blessing. He's not concerned about the ground producing. and the, It's like, yeah, whatever. I'll give you more and 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 I'll give you more. Will you love me? Will you stay focused? Will you do the things that I ask you to? And I'm not asking you to be a fear-filled nation that's afraid of me. I'm asking you to love me. And the only way you can show it is by following my commands. And so they do. And what does God do? He goes, wow, blessing, blessing. And then what happens? They start to fall away. So for this brief moment in time, during David and Solomon, they've arrived. And then? Starts to go south. Why? Because prosperity sets in. And when you read sadly about the kings after Solomon. Five did bad. Five did evil in the eyes of God. And one did well. And then another five. And the people of Israel, the nation of Israel just slowly declines. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) And then eventually we know they eventually end up in exile. (coughs) because they lose their way. But, but, all during this time, God has a plan. And just as we read about Abraham and Enoch, and they, they didn't see what was coming. Noah didn't know what a flood was, but he built an ark. Right? I don't know what a flood is. What's a flood? Rains every now and again. But a whole lot of other men during these thousands of years see a glimpse of hope. A slither. Like you're looking through the window. You can't see the whole movie, but you just see a, oh, and it looked like. And another slither. And they bring a hope of something that they don't see. But thank heavens they write it down. It's called the prophetic. It's called the prophecies. And I want to read a bunch of them to you, just quickly. We're not going to go to them on the board, because I haven't given them to Avi, because I didn't want to. But I wanted to, because there's a, a few, uh, just a few, so bear with me. And it's really a sign of faithfulness, but it's a sign that God's at work, in preparation. In Micah, and, and they're talking about somebody, and we all, know who, we all know who they're talking about. Micah, he says, he would be born in Bethlehem. That's all he knows. No more, just... Someone's coming. That's where he's going to be born. Isaiah, 
he says, he'll be born of a virgin. He says, he'll be called the Emmanuel. He says he'll be a messenger. There'll be a messenger to prepare the way for him. He'll be called a Nazarene. He'll bring light to Galilee. And uh, he'll heal the brokenhearted. Okay, I'll stop there at Isaiah. You know, scoffers will say, yeah, but you know what? That book of Isaiah was written after Jesus. Thank you, Roger. Roger mentioned to me, actually, the full book of Isaiah was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947, I think. And all historians and all those that have dated it will agree it dates back 1,500 years, the age of the scroll. So it couldn't have been written after Jesus. And Isaiah saw all these things. Moses said that he would come from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, from the tribe of Judah. Hosea said he would spend a season in Egypt. Jeremiah said children would be massacred at the time of his birth. So ringing a bell. Malachi said he would be preceded by Elijah. Zechariah said he would be called a king. He would be betrayed. The betrayal money would be used to buy a potter's field. His hands and feet would be pierced. Psalms speaks of how he would be declared the son of God. He would be praised by little children. He would be betrayed. He would be falsely accused. He would be silent before his accusers. He would be hated without cause. He would be mocked and ridiculed. Be forsaken by God. He would pray for his enemies. And that he would rise from the dead. And ascend into heaven. And be seated at the right hand of the Father. All these people lived hundreds of years apart. And they all saw a glimpse. And they wrote it down. And the possibility of one man coming to fulfill all those things is impossible. The odds are stacked against it. So bear with me here. I've described all of this pointing to a man called Jesus. And I want you to imagine the Old Testament is like a pyramid of information, history, archaeology, happenings and events. All pointing to the top of this pyramid. It's a man called Jesus. I had a picture this week. Dumb picture, but just humor me. The space station we know is sitting up in orbit permanently. I think it's still there. Or did it fall? It's still there. You know, we've got things falling out the sky all the time. So it's designed to remain in space. Okay? But it needs provisions all the time. Send up rockets, they replace the astronauts, they bring up spare parts, food, I don't know, whatever space stations need, not being an astronaut. And when that rocket comes in, if those, where those two parts meet, they better be the same size. They better meet. You can't, have, you can't have a mistake on that. And that rocket can't come in from the wrong angle. It's got to come in from exactly the right angle. Otherwise, you know, misalignment is not going to happen. When they join... What was dying gets life. And Jesus is that joy. He's the top of this pyramid of history. Everything that's captured in the Old Testament comes to a head. The top of the pyramid through the man of Jesus Christ. And he links the Old Testament to the new. He's the completion of everything. The culmination of The end point of everything. And he's the start of everything new.
and he fits the join between the old and the new. He's the perfect connection from old to new. And um, I've lost my train of thought, sorry. And so you see in the Old Testament this complicated system of animal sacrifice that paid a price for sins. And sin separates us from God, we know that. And because of continual sin, we need a final and ultimate sacrifice. And that's the man of Jesus. He's the pinnacle of history. The pinnacle point of that connection. And in John, 29, in John 19, I wanted to read this today because this is really the heart of, of the message. It says that later, this is Jesus hanging on a cross and we watched the Passion on Friday. Oh my hat. Knowing, listen to this, knowing that everything had now been finished. Finished. He says it twice in these verses. And so the scripture, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus says, I'm thirsty, and a jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it, and they put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when he had received the drink, he said, it is finished. The Greek word is tetelestai, which also means paid in full. He was at the top of that pyramid of all the history, all the sacrifices, all the laws, all the rules and regulations. And he kept that top and he said, it is done. He, Tetelestai. He came to finish God's work of salvation, to pay the full penalty for our sins. And with his death, that complex sacrificial system in the Old Testament ended because he took it upon himself. And now we can freely approach God. He's paid the price we cannot pay. And there's no outstanding debt to be paid by any of us. When he rose from the dead, he put death to death. He's killed death once and for all. Before I bring this to a close, I'd, I just want to add one, one more aspect. Please bear with me. Because what we see in the Old Testament is this commitment from God to say, if you obey me, I will cause you to prosper. We need to be a little bit careful. Because when we read the New Testament... We've got to be a little bit careful about what we read. I'm not so sure that God promises to prosper us like he did then. In fact, Jesus says quite the opposite. He says, if you come to me, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you. Because the New, Test New Testament's focus is not on prosperity here and now. It's the prosperity of salvation. Being in God's presence forever. And so though, right in the beginning of the scripture I read, in Hebrews 13, uh, Hebrews 11, they realized that they're aliens in this world. And they'd never heard the name Jesus. 
but they saw it. And can we see the prosperity of what God promises us in the next life as something to live for? And so today I want to say to you, I've got good news for you, and I've got bad news for you. I'll start with the bad news. The bad news is, if you listen to this message, and you think to yourself, it's not for me, I want to say to you, that's not the right choice to make today. I cut out a whole section right in the beginning, but I want to read a scripture to you, if I may. If I can just get to the beginning. And it's this, John 14, verse 8. Jesus said this. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me. No one comes to the Father except through me. Either he was mad to make that claim, or he was who he said he was. And I need to say to you today, in light of this message, the bad news is you have to decide if that message is true or if it's not. And your choice will decide your destiny. You can't ignore a statement like that. You can. You have the choice. I would say to you today, the bad news is, if you choose to ignore that, I hope you don't. The good news is, if that's true for you, if that's true for you, Hallelujah. So I'm going to ask everyone to close their eyes.